This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Now what would you do if God disagreed with you? Okay, think about that for a moment, right? What would you do if God disagreed with you? What would you do if you disagreed with God? Now I found that over the years, I realized that actually many people have no problem with God or Jesus. They have no problem with Jesus as long as Jesus meets their expectations, if they fit in the box that they've assigned to him, as long as Jesus is a good boy and behaves himself and does what we expect of him. But they start having problems when the purposes of God, the purpose of Jesus, the agenda of Jesus and the plan of Jesus doesn't meet the expectation. And as we look at uh, Matthew chapter 9 today, we begin to see how in Jesus' time, in Jesus' world, people were being challenged in their expectation of what he was coming to do. So in verse 1 to verse 7, we see of a blind, sorry, not a blind man, a paralyzed man who had been brought to Jesus. Now, in the other parts of uh, the Gospels which describe the life of Jesus, this man was actually carried by his friends and they probably broke through the roof to come to see Jesus. Now, they probably had come a very long way. They probably waited a very long time under the burning sun. They'd probably been a long queue for them to see Jesus. And finally, they get to see Jesus. The paralyzed man is there. The four friends of his are looking expectantly at Jesus. They've been waiting for it, waiting for it. And then Jesus says, Get up, you're healed. No, it's not right. If you look at the passage, Jesus says to the man, Take heart, your, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's a bit like queuing up for half an hour your favorite Chakwe Tiao store, right? Then when you get to the end, you get a Tami Pok instead, right? Except it's much worse for this man because he's been waiting all his life to walk again. He can't move. His friends have been bringing him there from miles away. And finally, Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. Now, I wonder what you would feel if you were the paralyzed man. What would you feel if you were the friends of the paralyzed man? You'd be like, what? What is happening here? Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does he say this very shocking thing? Because obviously, everybody's there for healing. Why does he not heal the paralyzed man? I think probably it's because the plan and the purposes and the agenda of Jesus is far, far different from the expectation of the paralyzed man. Jesus has come with an agenda which is very different from our expectations and the expectations of the paralyzed man. He has come not to deal so much with the problem of illness, sickness or paralysis, but the problem of sin. Because the problem of sin is in God's eyes and Jesus' eyes a far greater eternal and permanent problem than the problem of paralysis. Because the problem of paralysis is only really for this lifetime, but the problem of sin is an eternal one. It's a bit like going to the doctor, right? Maybe you've got an itch on your skin or you've got a sprained ankle and the doctor sees you, he does a series of tests, calls you in again, does a series of other tests and he finally says to you, oh, I'm so sorry, but you've got cancer. I guess when you found out you've got this much bigger problem than the problem in which you first came to see the doctor for, 
recedes into the problem of unimportance, right? So here Jesus, the miracle worker, the healer, tells this man who is paralyzed that your sins are forgiven and yet we are disappointed to a certain degree. And I can see that actually the Pharisees, if you look in this passage, are even more disappointed in Jesus because in verse 3, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Now the idea of blaspheming here is the idea of claiming what belongs to God. And they were saying that Jesus is going outside of his mandate, going outside of the box for which the religious teachers have for Jesus because he's doing or claiming to do what only God can do, which is forgive sins. Because obviously, only God has the ability to forgive what is universally a problem. So if I say, let's say Nick, for whatever reason, decides to steal somebody else's wallet, right? Elaine's wallet. I can't say to Nick, Nick, your sins are forgiven. Because really only Elaine can say to Nick, Nick, I forgive you for stealing my wallet, right? Only God needs to forgive Nick because first and foremost, when Nick steals from Elaine, he's committing an offense against God. So when Jesus says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, he's claiming the power and position of God. But Jesus takes, in, a, in many ways, offense to what the religious teachers are saying. He knows their thoughts, because obviously he has supernatural insight. And he says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Now, the thinking of Jesus blaspheming is actually evil, because Jesus in truth is God, and Jesus in truth can forgive sins. But it is evil because it is also going against the plan, God's plan for Jesus to forgive sins. So it's evil in God's eyes to actually say that Jesus is blaspheming when he actually has the power to forgive sins and he has come to forgive sins. So Jesus then says that he wants people to know that he has the authority to forgive sins. And what does he do then? He says, I will heal this man so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Now, what is harder to do? To forgive sins or to make the paralyzed man walk? From an absolute real truth standpoint, it is harder to heal. Sorry, it's not wrong, right? It is harder to forgive sins than it is to raise the paralyzed man. Because only God can forgive sins. But from a visual point of view, what is seen, it is harder to make the paralyzed man walk than to forgive sins. Because you can't see the forgiveness of sins. If I say to Nick, Nick, your sins are forgiven. He still looks the same, right? Still wearing his green shirt still wearing his dark glasses, you know. He, he, there's nothing happening to him. We can't see the forgiveness of sins. But if Nick is paralyzed and I say, stand up, wow, that's very different, right? Because Nick is now standing up, walking around, jumping and clapping for joy. I remember as I was thinking about uh, this sermon, uh, I can't say God sent me this illustration. Lah. But in a way it was because I was walking down the road and I saw this bus and I'm not sure whether you've seen this advertisement in the bus because I can't imagine 
that's very common because I haven't seen another bus with this sign before. But it's advertising some uh, exhibition at a national museum. And the sign at the side there says, what is not visible is not invisible. Have you all seen that before? Maybe I'm the only one who's seen this bus, right? There's a phantom bus running around Singapore, okay? But there is a sign on the side of this bus which is advertising some exhibition at the National Museum saying, what is not visible is not invisible. And I thought, wow, that, that's actually what Jesus is doing here, right? Because just because we can't see the forgiveness of this man, it is not invisible because he's going to show it by doing what is visible. Now, Jesus then does a miracle of the highest visible order in order to show that he can do the miracle of the highest invisible order. Now, when you think of it, even 2,000 years later, making a paralyzed man walk is impossible. It is impossible. With all our modern medicine, with how much money you have, you still can't make a paralyzed man walk. So you think of the most famous paralyzed people, okay? So uh, this is Christopher Reeve. He, was a, he, was, he played Superman in, um, in the movies in the past. And he was paralyzed because he fell off a horse. With all his celebrity, with all his money, he couldn't heal his paralysis and he died because of his paralysis. So I guess current day, Stephen Hawking is probably the most famous paralyzed person. I mean, he is one of the greatest minds of today. Incredible celebrity, he's written books. He's very prominent. If he could be healed of paralysis with modern medicine, he'll be walking today. It is impossible. I mean, we have to admit it's impossible to make a paralyzed person walk. Now, what does Jesus do? Jesus says to the man, how many words? About eight words, right? Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man stands up in the midst of the crowd and goes home. Now, you know, I, I, I sometimes uh, read uh, some articles saying that, oh, you know, ancient world, the people, they're very gullible people. You know, they fall for all sorts of things. And, uh, and that's why they fell for Jesus. But I'm sure that the people in the ancient world, they know paralysis when they see it, right? When someone is paralyzed, he is paralyzed whether it's today or 2,000 years ago, the man cannot walk, he is paralyzed. And suddenly, the man gets up. And not only gets up, he's strong enough to take up his mat and carry it with him. And the crowd, recognizing what happens, look at what they say in verse 7. Verse 8, sorry. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Now what is the crowd recognizing here? They recognize that God has given some authority to Jesus the man. And what is that authority? The authority to forgive sins. Because of what Jesus had done in doing the visibly impossible, the crowd recognizes that Jesus has the power that God has given him and the authority to forgive sins. Now, Jesus is not content in having this power because God's agenda, God's plan for Jesus is more than just you know, randomly forgiving people. Because in the very next section, Jesus, his whole life mission is to go out 
to call sinners to himself and to forgive sinners. So in verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man, a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And tax collectors were renowned sinners of the day. They were sinners against people because they collected tax and usually at extortion rate. They were enemies of the state because they collected taxes not for the Jews, but for the hated Romans. So they were sinners in every way. And Jesus called up to him and says, Hey, you know, Matthew, I'm having dinner at your place, right? Get the food ready, invite all your sinner friends, and we're going to have dinner together. Again, in verse 11, the Pharisees were not happy with Jesus because Jesus was not following the script. The Pharisees said to this, He says, Look, why does your, your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, they're synonymous, tax collectors and sinners, they're all one the same. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, the expectation of the religious leaders, and I'm sure the expectation of many religious people today, if you would ask them honestly, is that God saves the righteous and condemns the sinners. Don't you think so? Don't you think that that's what most religious people will say? The righteous will be saved, the sinners will be condemned. And that's the blueprint that the religious teachers had of Jesus. But Jesus is overturning the blueprint, right? Because instead of saving the righteous, He is saving the sinners. He's calling out the sinners, he's going to their house, and he is associating with them. And Jesus says, who goes to see the doctor? It is the sick who see the doctor. It is the sick who need the doctor. And so it is the sinner who needs the person who can forgive sins. Now, he's not actually saying that the Pharisees or the religious teachers are righteous. So they are not in need of a doctor. You can see that because of the passage Jesus quotes in verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And if you go back to Hosea chapter 6, where this quote comes from, you realize that what is happening in Hosea's time that was that the religious teachers were relying on their ritual rather than their acknowledgement of God. And that's what he's saying. He's saying that the righteous, so-called righteous religious teachers, are only righteous in their own eyes because they are doing religious rituals, but they are not actually showing mercy or acknowledging God in their life. And I think that that is such a, a great shame because everybody needs forgiveness of sins. And everybody can benefit from Jesus giving them forgiveness of sins. Except for those people who think that they are not sinners. I think of my grandfather. and uh, He had this knee problem for many years. He lived up to 95, right? So you would expect that he had knee problems, right? And I remember how for many years, uh, my mother who was a doctor kept telling him that he sh should go and see a specialist because his knees were very, very painful. And it got to the stage where his his leg wasn't even straight anymore, right? It was bent at the knee. 
And he kept insisting that he was fine until finally when he went to see the, the specialist, the specialist said, you know, it's too late. I can't help you with your knee problem because the, the, the blood flow is too little and the damage is too great. And the Pharisees were like that. They thought that they didn't need Jesus because they were righteous. But what a shame that was. Because Jesus had come to bring forgiveness for all people and could benefit all people with forgiveness, but they didn't. It's like another story I read about how uh, this World Health Organization sent all these doctors to Africa to bring them medicines and vaccines, and they traveled very far into the interior of the country. And when they finally got there, uh, the villagers refused the medicine and refused the vaccines because they thought they were okay. And I was thinking, what happens if Jesus and the religious teachers is even worse? Because Jesus was God who came into this world to bring forgiveness and to call sinners. But there were so many people like the religious teachers who thought they were okay. Now, why exactly is this happening? Well, I think if you look in verse 14 onwards, we can see that it wasn't just the Pharisees, but other people who were trying to understand Jesus, but because Jesus was not fitting into their box of expectations, were rejecting Jesus. So in verse 14, John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. I think that this is one of the most profound parts of this passage today. And if we really grasp what it means, it really shows that the coming of Jesus is so awesome and spectacular that it overturns every expectation of humanity. You see, the, the problem with uh, John's disciples were that they were fasting. And fasting is associated with mourning. And Jesus is saying, you know, it's just like if you do go to a wedding and fast, during the 10-course meal. But you can't, right? Can you go to a wedding and be solemn when your best friend is getting married? You can't, because the occasion is one for joy. In the same way, when God's Son comes into the world, how can you fast and mourn? Because the occasion is so tremendous. So the coming of Jesus cannot be measured by any of the past predecessors of any of the things that come into the world. It's a bit like, I don't know, imagine if a big spaceship, I mean, not in the movies, right? A big spaceship literally came into the world today. Well, then it changes the whole way we view the world, right? But, but I'm not saying Jesus is a spaceship. Jesus is much more than a spaceship, right? Jesus is God's Son coming into the world. How can you measure Jesus and, and put Him within your expectations? Because everything that's happened in the past cannot give you a perspective of who Jesus is. So he uses the illustration about clothes and uh, wineskins. And I was thinking, none of us understand, right? Because 
uh, we have no frame of reference. And I, then I thought to myself, okay, there's one thing that we have a frame of reference from. So, okay, this is a, a golf glove, right? Okay, so, but then again, of you, nobody plays golf, so you all don't understand. But you can understand from the picture what's happening, right? So, a golf glove is made of uh, leather. It's an animal skin. Now, after you wear the golf glove for a while, this is what happens. Next slide. It becomes really old and, and it's very stiff. And, it, and if you've ever played golf, it becomes very small. Right? It's like you have to really squash your hand into the golf glove because it's not supple anymore. In the same way, in the ancient world, when they made uh, wine skins or they, when they made uh, clothes and they had you know, elements of animal skin or you know, very rough cotton and things like that, you can't put new and old together because the new will always shrink and tear the old, the old skin. It's like a golf glove. You, you imagine you, you, you sew a new golf glove to the old golf glove. The new golf glove, after it gets wet and old for a while, it will shrink, get smaller, and tear all the threads which hold it together. And that's a very powerful illustration of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, when you try to put Jesus into the old wine skin of your old worldview, Jesus cannot fit in because his coming cannot be contained by any of the old ways of looking at things. And we see why that is. Because Jesus comes to forgive sins, Jesus comes to call people, Jesus comes and his power to heal and to cast out demons has never been replicated again in the future and never been actually done in the past. So we then come to four different sets of people, right? Four different sets of people. And each of these different sets of people, in many ways, show the tremendous, I guess, paradigm or, or, or expectation-breaking uh, view of Jesus. So the first person that comes to Jesus is, is this synagogue leader. He's a, he's a very powerful person. And his daughter has died. It's very sad. But... In verse 18, he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, if you put your hand on her, she will live. Now this is really tremendous. The view that this man has of Jesus is that he can raise the dead. Now, where do you measure Jesus with against all the people in the past who can do this sort of thing? Then, a woman comes who had been bleeding for 12 years. 12 years is a very long time. She probably tried everything to heal herself. And she comes and says to herself, if only I touch his cloak. She doesn't speak to Jesus. She doesn't talk to him. If only I, not even touch his skin, right? Touch his cloak. I will be healed. Then again, two blind men come to Jesus. And, and they think to themselves, if, if only... Jesus would give us a bit of attention, I will be able to see. And then again, a demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus. All of these four sets of people are really asking Jesus to do something, which maybe in the ancient world, before Jesus came, maybe one person or two people could do individually in their lifetime. But here, in one person, in the person of Jesus Christ, he is being asked to heal, to be able to make the blind see, the dead rise, to stop the bleeding, and to cast out the demon. In each of these instances, Jesus 
is able to do so. Now, the thing that keeps being repeated over and over here, right, is that each of these people, except the fourth, right, come to Jesus with faith. So if you look up here on the slide, okay, you look up here on the slide, the the attitude of each of the people who come to Jesus is one of great faith. So, the synagogue ruler comes and kneels before Jesus. He doesn't stand before Jesus, he kneels before him. right? As Remember, he's the synagogue ruler, Jesus is just the carpenter. But yet he humbles himself before Jesus. He said, my daughter has just, just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Okay, that's great faith, right? The second one, the wounded bleeding said to herself, if I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Verse 28, when he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, it will be done to you. In each of these instances, these people were willing to take Jesus at face value. They were willing to take Jesus at who he said he was, what he was able to do. And by accepting Jesus for what he said that he could do at face value and not saying, well, nah, Jesus can't do these things. They received the benefit of what Jesus was bringing into this world. And I think that each of these instances, it really shows us the power of Jesus Christ. I remember before I became a Christian, I used to think that part of the my struggle with believing in Jesus was just his resurrection on the cross from the cross after the cross but i think part of what made me become a christian was when i began reading the bible more and more in depth and i realized how do i explain all these miracles that jesus was doing could it be that every one of these miracles was something that the crowd just hallucinated could it be that every one of these miracles that jesus did was something which was just made up But if Jesus had done all these miracles, then how do we explain the person of Jesus unless He is the Son of God? And if He is the Son of God, then surely He has the power to to, to forgive. And that means that I need forgiveness. I'm not righteous and I'm a sinner. I think that as we look at this passage, I don't know about you, but to me, it is so powerful because over and over again, it shows that Jesus is somebody who is so special, so unique in this world, that he cannot be measured with the past people, and that he must be really God come into this world to forgive us. And it means that, in many ways, we have to respond like like the blind people, the woman who is bleeding for 12 years, like the synagogue ruler and the dead daughter. We come to Jesus on his terms, not our terms, and we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, to me, one of the saddest things is what comes at the end of that section. Because we've just seen how Jesus had healed the blind man, cast out the demon, the dead girl rises from the dead, the woman of healing uh, with bleeding will stop bleeding. And the crowds recognize what was happening. Look at what they say in verse 33. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd were amazed 
and said nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So the crowd are able to recognize at face value what has just happened. But look at what it says there in verse 34. Tragic, right? But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. You see, for the, for the Pharisees, their, their expectations of Jesus and their desire to impose their own box of expectations on Jesus meant that even when they saw the greatest miracle of Jesus, even though they saw the paralyzed man walk, even though they saw the casting out of the demon, even though probably they saw the, the bleeding woman healed, the blind man see, they were unwilling to accept Jesus at face value because of their desire to want to set the agenda for Jesus Christ. Now I think that this still happens today. Uh, I was setting my agenda for Jesus all these years until I was forced to confront what it said in the Bible about Jesus and to recognize if it is true, then I must throw away all my expectations of Jesus and accept Jesus' expectations for me and to say that I was a sinner. I remember one very sad thing and I still have it quite vividly in my mind. And I think I've shared this illustration before that many, many years ago, uh, one of my dad's good friends had cancer. And I remember playing uh, golf with him in Australia uh, a week before he passed away. And, and when we were playing golf, uh, I remember trying very, very um, deliberately and seriously to share the, the gospel of Jesus Christ with him because, I mean, I, I knew he was going to die. I knew he was going to die very soon. I thought this is probably my last chance to share the good news of Jesus Christ with him so that at least, you know, he could go to heaven. And I was really sad because uh, I did manage to share with him and have a serious conversation while we were playing golf about you know, the need for forgiveness, eternal life, all these sort of things. But here was a man, even though he was dying, and he knew he was dying, and he knew he would die very, very soon, kept saying that he was a good man, and he was going to heaven, and he didn't need Jesus Christ. And to me, I just couldn't understand it. Because I thought to myself, well, you know, if Jesus says that you need a Savior, and Jesus has done all these things to prove that He is the Savior, to come to forgive your sins, then who is right? Jesus or me? Because this man still kept insisting, I am right. I must be right. And the only reason he thought he was right was because this is my opinion. I am a good person. I will go to heaven on my own. It doesn't matter what Jesus has done. It doesn't matter what Jesus has died on the cross and risen again. It doesn't matter that Jesus has done all these miracles. I am still right. I'm still a good person and I can save myself. And I think that was so sad, isn't it? Because for this man, because he wanted to impose his own expectations on Jesus, his own expectations on how to be saved, Today he is dead and there is no saviour for him. But I think that as we look at today's passage, it's really a, a great encouragement uh, to my faith because when I see what Jesus Christ has done, it shows us something about Jesus. 
Jesus wants us to know that He has that authority. And if Jesus has that authority, and it shows us that He is the Savior who calls sinners, then who am I to say that I'm righteous on my own? I have to submit to Jesus' expectations of me and to confess that I am a sinner. And I need to respond to Jesus' call so that He will forgive me and that He will eventually save me and bring me to heaven. So I think as we look at today's passage, I find it such an encouraging passage. It is not just the resurrection from the dead that shows who Jesus is. It is all the miracles that he, he did as well to deliberately show us through what is visible, the power that He has that is invisible to us, the forgiveness of sins. And I think that as we see these things very clearly, then all the more our faith should be strong. Because unless we have an answer and say, well, you know, Jesus didn't really make the paralyzed man rise from the dead. The blind people, were they could see her along, right? And the woman who's bleeding for 12 years, well, she wasn't really bleeding, she was just imagining it. How do we explain who Jesus is? Right? That's not a very satisfying conclusion to me at all. What is the more logical conclusion is Jesus is this, like this, God, God, God's Son comes into the world which blows apart all our expectations. That means that we have to actually recognize Jesus for who He is and submit to His expectations for us. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.